This message by Bill Kittrell was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Bill serves as the senior pastor of Cornerstone Church. All right, good morning, everybody. Please turn in your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 2. If you're here and you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, please raise your hand. Our ushers will happily bring you a copy of the Bible. You can keep it. It's a gift from us to you. But we want you to be able to follow along as we look carefully at the, the letter of Paul to the Galatians. We're in a series on Galatians, a series of messages this fall celebrating the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Today we're going to look at Galatians chapter 2. The first 10 verses. So begin reading with me please in um, verse 1, Galatians 2. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Verse 10, only 
They ask us to remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. I believe the main point the Lord wants to make through this text today for us is to encourage us that like Peter and like Paul and Barnabas, we too are entrusted with the gospel to this generation. We too are entrusted with the gospel to this generation, to our community, to the nations, to our field of service, to our sphere. The gospel, Paul makes clear in the very first chapter of this letter, we've looked at it. Verse 4, the Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. We've been singing about it and talking about it. We shared the Lord's Supper today so that we could see with our eyes His sacrifice for our sins. This is the Gospel. And we are delivered by believing it. We are justified. We are accepted by God by faith Alone, And so in chapter 2 in our text, in verse 5, Paul says his, his purpose is that the truth of the gospel might be preserved. That was his purpose. It was the reformers' purpose in the 16th century and following. And it's our purpose in this series and, and our celebration of the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. R.C. Sproul a great Reformed theologian says this, the Reformers concluded that when Rome rejected and condemned sola fide, faith alone, that's the Latin, it condemned itself in effect and ceased to be a true church. This precipitated the creation of new denominations seeking to continue Biblical Christianity and to be true churches with a true gospel. They sought to rescue. Remember Paul said his purpose was to preserve the gospel. They sought to rescue the gospel from the impending danger of total eclipse. The, the eclipse metaphor is helpful. An eclipse of the sun doesn't destroy the sun. An, an eclipse obscures the light of the sun. It brings darkness where there was light. The Reformation sought to remove the eclipse so that the light of the gospel could once again shine in its full brilliance, being perceived with clarity, seen. The life of the Protestant church in the 16th century wasn't perfect, but the revival of godliness in that era is a matter of record that attests to the power of the gospel when viewed in full light, when not eclipsed. We should have a picture of the recent total eclipse in our area taken by our own Ben Finch, a professional photographer, just a brilliant picture of the eclipse. I know many of you watched this happen. 
as the moon just came in front of the sun and it went dark where I was for over two minutes. And Ben had his camera and just took pictures as this happened. Isn't that amazing? And you just, you just see this picture of the moon and suddenly this, this incredibly powerful sun is darkened. Because something is obscuring it. A powerful sun is darkened. And so this metaphor is helpful, Dr. Sproul says. The gospel is the power of God into salvation. It's powerful like the sun to everyone who believes. But the gospel can be obscured. It can have something come in front of it and make it dark. The, the Reformation was about an unobscuring of the gospel. Galatians is about preserving the gospel, making sure the light of the gospel can be perceived. This is what Martin Luther said in the introduction of his third set of lectures on this letter. Third time. He's doing it again. I have taken in hand once again to expand this epistle of St. Paul to the Galatians. Not because I desire to teach new things, obviously not, or such as you have not heard before, especially since that by the grace of God, Paul is now thoroughly known to you. Again and again and again, he has pounded it into their head. But because this we have to fear as the greatest and nearest danger, lest Satan take from us the pure doctrine of faith and bring into the church again the doctrine of works and men's traditions. It can happen. It can happen. The gospel, the light of the gospel can be obscured, eclipsed. There can be a total eclipse. And so we're fighting to preserve it. And so today we're going to look at these 10 verses. Paul said in chapter 1, I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. That's the problem. It's not man's gospel. It's not up to us. I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Christ. That's why he's telling us in these verses about his trip to Jerusalem to the main folks, Peter, James, and John. He's continuing to make his case. His gospel was not derived from men. We're going to ask three questions to unpack this text. Another gospel. Is there another gospel? Secondly, Paul's gospel. Is, is Paul's gospel the one true gospel? And finally, entrusted with the gospel. Were Paul and Barnabas entrusted with the one true gospel the same way the apostle Peter was? Are we entrusted with the gospel? What does it look like to be entrusted with the gospel? The first question is, is there another gospel? Another, another gospel. The main point of the first five verses 
of our text is that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem, the main, the birthplace of Christianity, the apostles, the main apostles, those who walked with Christ, the main point Paul is making is that these leaders in this church did not think Titus should be circumcised even though he was a Greek. He was a Gentile. He was uncircumcised. He wasn't Jewish. The issue came up because of false brothers. They had infiltrated the church. They were demanding circumcision for salvation. They were adding to the gospel, the one true gospel. They were preaching another gospel. So Paul says in verse 4, because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. Scholars say in the Greek, this is a disjointed sentence. It's emotional. Paul is trying to say something, but his emotions are getting the best of him because he's mad. Titus and the fact that he was uncircumcised came up when Paul was in Jerusalem, just like it's come up in Galatia because of false brothers. They claimed to be Christians. They apparently believed in some way in Jesus Christ as the Messiah, but Paul doesn't think they're true brothers because they are adding to the gospel. It is no minor issue. They're trying to add circumcision. They're trying to add the law of Moses. And Paul is angry. He can't even write because he is so upset. He's trying to preserve the gospel from being eclipsed. It's not a minor issue. Whenever we try to encourage the observance of the law, it changes what salvation is. It's no longer a work of God. It's something accomplished by human beings, and it makes Paul mad. In verse 3, even Titus, though, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised. Though he was a Greek, though he was a Gentile, though he was not Jewish, the leaders in Jerusalem didn't require Titus to be circumcised. It was the first time in the letter that this critical issue of circumcision is brought up. In the Old Testament, circumcision was required to be part of God's covenant people. Those who refused couldn't be members, if you will, of the Old Testament church. Circumcision was the sign of the covenant. So in the New Testament, some Jewish believers, some Jewish Christians wrestled with this because it was so important in the Old Testament. And they started to believe, and there were these false teachers that believed that Gentiles were now also required to receive circumcision to be members of the church, to be saved. 
to be part of the, the new community, the church of Jesus Christ. It was, a, it was a major issue. It was addressed in the book of Acts. The first church council in Acts 15 addressed it. That's why we think this letter was written before that time. In a similar age of false teaching, the Protestant reformers returned to the Scriptures. They were dealing with similar things, the addition to the Gospel. They returned to the Scriptures, and there they found the way of salvation. It was a revival. They were born again. We've been looking at this. Instead of indulgences, the Mass, relics, superstitions that obscured the gospel, that were trying to eclipse the gospel, they rediscovered the gospel, the way of salvation in Scripture. They had five solas. It's Latin. It means alone. They had five alone phrases, five solas, was their attempt to summarize biblical teaching about salvation. We are saved by God's grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone. We receive this through faith alone, which is our focus in Galatians, to the glory of God alone, and with Scripture alone as the only final decisive authority on truth. The Word of God. It's what Paul is fighting for. The Word of God. It was revealed to him. We have it in a book. The Roman Catholic Church believed salvation was by grace. They believed it was through faith. They believed salvation was on the basis of Christ's finished work. The, the disagreement was captured by the Reformers with this little word, alone. Sola. My Latin's a little weak, so I won't do all the Latin for you. Actually, my English is a little weak most of the time. Sola, alone. Here's what John Piper says. The Protestant Reformation was fundamentally a controversy with the Roman Catholic Church over how helpless we really are in our deadness and guilt. That's why Luther thought the bondage of the will was his most important work. The Reformers believed that only grace could raise us from the dead. And only Christ could become our punishment and our perfection. These two miracles of life from the dead and wrath removed could only be received as a gift through faith. Faith alone. They could never be merited or earned. All so that the entire transaction would culminate sola deo gloria. The, to the glory of God alone. The Roman Catholic Church taught faith, taught grace, taught Christ. What they missed was alone. R.C. Sproul says it's not an exaggeration to say that the eye of the Reformation 
tornado was this one little word. The reformers insisted that justification is by grace alone, by faith alone, and through Christ alone. It was the alone that caused all the trouble. That's what Paul is fighting for. Whenever we don't use that word, we're in danger of the gospel being eclipsed. So we want to use that word to preserve the light of the gospel. We have four grown children, all of which we homeschooled from all through elementary school and high school. Prior to them going to college, they all graduated from the University of Tennessee. Sadly, one got an additional degree from the University of Florida. Broke my heart. I remember participating in a seminar when we first began to homeschool. Sherry and I, my wife Sherry and I, neither of us knew anything about education. And our education was questionable. We, we were educated in West Virginia, no comment. <laughs> the leader of a, a local homeschool association was there. and In fact, I think they were co-sponsoring the event. We were there to learn, and I, I met this person. He was glad I was there. We were interacting, having a good time. And I made a comment. I said, I quote, I don't think homeschooling is for everyone. To which he paused, he stopped, he looked at me and said, quote, yes, it is. And he meant it. And I thought, okay then. <laughs> I disagreed. That was in the 1980s. I disagreed then and I disagree now. Though I've been misrepresented all my life. The particular way parents choose to educate their children is not of what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15 of first importance. <laughs> it's a secondary issue. There's room for disagreement. It's the responsibility of parents. And they have liberty to make different choices for their kids. I want to fight for their liberty to do that. Celebrate that. And we've always done that. To insist that it's otherwise is to add to the gospel. Makes it another gospel. This illustrates how easy it is to slip away from the gospel. All we have to do is say acceptance with God requires faith in Christ. And homeschooling. Or Bible memorization. Faith in Christ, and you have to take your spouse out on a date every week. Faith in Christ, and you have to vote for a particular political party. I could go on. It's easy to slip away. It's easy to 
eclipse the gospel. We're in a fight to preserve the gospel. Paul says in chapter 3 in Galatians, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Now, I submit there are many believers today that are bewitched. And the gospel is obscure. It's, it's easy to drift away because Satan is real. He hates the truth. He's doing his best to obscure it. He will twist the truth if he can't totally eclipse it. Jesus said, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom, the gospel, and doesn't understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. Satan may simply blind people to the glory of Christ. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled only to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's obscured the gospel. He's eclipsed the gospel to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. He's the God of this world. He has enormous power. Enormous blinding power. When, when Paul gave his testimony about his calling, he said Christ sent him to open the Gentiles' eyes so they may turn from darkness to light. He said his speech was a demonstration of the power of the Spirit. It takes the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit to defeat Satan. His, his focus is on the gospel, the heart of the message that God has revealed in the Scripture. He'd be happy for people to believe thousands of true facts. As long as they're blind to the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. John Piper says Satan would be happy for people to make A's on a hundred Bible fact quizzes as long as they can't see the glory of Christ in the gospel. He's our great enemy. That's why it's easy to slip away. Paul says in verse 4, because of false brothers secretly brought in like a snake in the Garden of Eden who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ. They're trespassers. They've crept in. Both the folks in Jerusalem, the false brothers there, and Galatia, and Knoxville. They're not authentic. They create dissension. They infiltrate the church. They're seducers. They're undercover agents. That's what Paul is trying to say. This is his perspective on their theology. They're adding to the gospel. They, they don't want us to be free. He uses this terminology, slavery and freedom. Whenever we add to the gospel, there's bondage. Now, now note verse 10, he says, they ask us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. In fact, it seems Paul was in Jerusalem to bring relief for the poor who were suffering from a famine. It seems most probable that's the trip he's talking about. So he was eager to take care of the poor. They wanted him to remember the poor. James was there. We're reminded of James 1. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourself. Religion that is pure is to visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
and to keep yourself unstained from the world. So remembering the poor is not an addition to the gospel. Faith always works by love. Faith always produces the obedience of faith. It's not the basis of justification. Though. We'll talk more about this when we do a series on James beginning in January. But the, the false brothers didn't win the day. Is there another gospel? No! There is no other gospel. The Lord Jesus Christ gave Himself for our sins and we are justified by faith alone. The second question, what about Paul's gospel? Is Paul's gospel the one true gospel? In verse 2, he says the gospel he proclaims. That's what we're looking at. The, the one he's proclaiming to the Gentiles, the one that doesn't require circumcision, is that the one true gospel? He says in verse 2 that he went up to Jerusalem. Agabus was a prophet in Antioch. He had this prophetic word that there was going to be a famine, and indeed there was, and the church there was sending relief. They could have sent anybody, but Paul said he had a revelation, a revelation from the Lord. He was led by the Spirit, him and Barnabas, to be the ones that take the relief for the poor to Jerusalem, and he had Titus with him, who was a Gentile. And some were insisting he couldn't be saved unless he was circumcised. But the apostles, John, Peter, James, the Lord's brother, didn't agree. His main point is that these leaders did not require circumcision. They added nothing to Paul's gospel. In fact, they ratified it. They gave him the right hand of fellowship. Amen, brother. We're with you. Titus was a, a co-worker. He would later play a major role in Corinth and in the New Testament. Paul writes a letter to him. And they said, no, he, he doesn't have to be circumcised. Paul didn't go to the apostles, though. This is what's most important because he had doubts about his gospel. And he's going to great pains to say, I was not wondering if I was right. Okay? Paul met the Lord on the road to Damascus and received a direct revelation from God. The gospel. He had no doubt. Let me, let me just make sure you're clear on this. You've never had an experience like this. And Paul <laughs> had no doubts. He didn't care what anybody on the planet thought. He had the gospel. He had the word of God. Sola Scriptura. Alone. The word of God alone is authority. No man gave me this gospel. He got it straight from the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We have it in this book. After Luther posted his 95 theses we've talked about in 1517, 
there was a lot of debates. And there were charges against Martin Luther. He was condemned in a papal bull. The, the Pope issued a, a papal bull that condemned him. It all culminated in his dramatic stand at the, as Jeff has told me how to pronounce this, Diet of Worms. Looks like Diet of Worms, which could be misunderstood. In April 1521, he was summoned there by the Holy Roman Empire. They wouldn't understand your insistence on the separation of church and state. Luther was in danger. He feared for his life. He was courageous. Like theologian John Wayne once said, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. That's what Luther did. He told his friend Philip Melanchthon, I shall enter Worms under my Captain Christ despite the gates of hell. And he later recalled the condemnation had already been published in every town. He insisted on walking there. He only rode in a wagon towards the end when he got there. So he was being harassed along the way. The condemnation had already been published. So that the herald himself asked me whether I still intended to go to Worms. Because he was in danger. Though in truth, I was physically afraid and trembling. I replied to him, I will repair thither. In other words, I will go, though I should find there as many devils as there are tiles on the housetops. He made the journey. He had letters of safe conduct issued by the emperor and, and other German rulers because he was scared. He had a few friends with him, colleagues from the university, a student, a monk. He was on trial for his life. And he was commanded to renounce his doctrine of justification by faith alone. What if he had? He didn't. He uttered these immortal words. Unless... I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason. I will not recant. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against conscience is neither right nor safe. He's following his mentor, the Apostle Paul. It's held captive. Here's what he said about the word of God. The Holy Spirit Himself and God, the Creator of all things, is the author of this book. Scripture, although also written of men, is not of men, nor from men, but from God. He who would not read these stories in vain must firmly hold that Holy Scripture is not human, but divine wisdom. This is the Word of God. The Word must stand. For God cannot lie, and heaven and earth must go to ruins before the most insignificant letter or title or tittle of His Word remains unfulfilled. That's why He would not recant. This is God's Word. 
I'm held captive by God's Word. Oh, how we need that today. When Paul says in verse 2 that he wanted to make sure he, hadn't, he wasn't running or had not run in vain, he had no doubts about his gospel. He knew it was the Word of God. He knew also, though, that those who seemed to be influential, if they didn't agree with him, it was going to get rough. It was going to be a problem. Imagine, he was, he was um, the trouble he was having now, and they supported him. Imagine if Peter, James, and John had said, we disagree. You have to be circumcised. Imagine. And he knew that. And that's what he was doing. But he had no doubts about the Word of God. He had no doubts. And he did not idolize these leaders. He's working very hard not to be disrespectful. He respects them. He wants to talk to them. He appreciates their influence. But he doesn't venerate them. He doesn't idolize them. In our culture, in our Christian subculture, we tend to be dazzled by religious superstars. I think we should be so thankful for John Piper and John MacArthur and Tim Keller. I am so thankful for these men. I respect them. They're a gift from God. But we've got to guard our hearts from idolizing them. Evangelical superstars. It's, it's our culture just loves celebrity. And we can get caught up in this. And Paul's a great example here. He's balanced pr proper gratefulness and respect with limitations. Only the Word of God. And each of those men that I just mentioned would totally agree with that. They would want their teaching to be checked by the Word. Finally, the third question, what, what's it mean to be entrusted with the gospel? What's it look like? They saw, verse 7, that Paul and Barnabas had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised in the same way Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised. They saw, verse 9, they perceived Evidence of grace. They perceived the grace. Not only did they recognize that's, that's the one true gospel, they also recognized Paul was an apostle. He was a minister. He had been entrusted with the gospel. Just like Peter. It, it matters that entrusted is a passive verb. It's what theologians call a divine passive. It is God who entrusted Paul with the gospel. It was God who called him to take the gospel to the uncircumcised. Paul always described it like this. He, he said in Romans 1, we have received grace and apostleship. Ephesians 3, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. These leaders, they didn't give Paul his gospel. 
They didn't alter his gospel. They didn't add to his gospel. They didn't take away from his gospel. They didn't give him his authority as a minister of the gospel. They just recognized that God had given him all this through his grace. It's God-given. This gospel is from God. It's a revelation from God. And because of his great love for us, he's preserved it in a book. And we don't ever want it to be obscured. We're, we aren't apostles. But we have been entrusted with an apostolic gospel. And we must preach this gospel. We must proclaim that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us that we might be delivered from this present evil age. There is salvation in, in no other name. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave his life as a ransom for many. Come to Christ, as Jeff said this morning. May, may the Lord draw you to Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we are so glad you're here. Come every Sunday. You're always welcome. We're just going to say the same thing again and again. We're going to preach to you about Jesus Christ and pray that you'll see the glory of God in the face of Christ. We've been entrusted with the Gospel Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. We've got to preserve it. We've got to protect it. We've got to celebrate it. And we've got to go into the field we're called to in this generation, in this community, for His glory alone. Amen. Father, we are grateful today for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fills us with joy this morning, Lord, because we've been saved by the mercy of God. We've been saved by grace alone. You've given us the gift of faith. And because of that, we have joy in Christ. And Lord, today we celebrate that. We thank you for that. I pray today now, Lord, as we return to worship, that you would fill us afresh with your Spirit. And we would see if the, if the good news about Christ has been obscured in our life, that today we would just preach the gospel to ourselves as believers and once again rejoice in song and worship you. So help us, Lord, even as we celebrate the Reformation and study this letter, let the joy of knowing Christ Jesus reign in our lives and our congregation. We ask this in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Bill Kittrell given during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us on the web at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in celebrating God's grace and pursuing God's purpose.